So singing is found throughout the entire Bible. There are at least 185 songs that are identified as such in the Bible. 185. And there's many more that are probably songs. It doesn't say that they're songs. They're at least recited poetry. And in the ancient world, it was rare to have poetry that wasn't accompanied with, by music in some way. And the very first song we find in the Bible comes in Genesis chapter 2. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, woman, for she was taken out of man. The very first song in the Bible is a man's response to his, his soon-to-be wife. Guys, are you listening? <laughs> Guys, especially those of you who are hoping to be married one day, are you listening? The very first song in the Bible was a praise for the woman who would one day be his wife. And there's a reason for this. I mean, it seems kind of strange that the first song would be about a woman, not God, right? Like, it just kind of makes it. But the woman, God, even before the fall, in the process of his creation, created a situation that was not good so that he could step in and rescue. That rescue we get from God isn't just part of the fall. It's built into who God is as our father. And... So man is alone and it's not good. And God says, we need to create a helper for him. Let's create a helper for him. And they go through all the animals. But the word they use for helper there is this Hebrew word, ezer. And I'm sorry, we're getting into the weeds kind of quick, but this is really important to understand what's going on with singing. And so the helper is called the ezer. This is the only place where the word ezer is used in the Bible, where it's not in relation to God himself or a powerful king. That's what woman was. Woman was the answer, the salvation. Woman was the answer to a problem. I, I know women, you're, yeah, you're, you're hearing me on that, right? God, in, in, in the pre-fall creation, God created a problem that he could solve, and the solution to the problem was woman. All right. Um, Ezer is always about God or about a powerful king. Like if you're being attacked by a, a really powerful army or a really powerful king, you you go look for a more powerful king to be your easer, someone who will come to your rescue against this more powerful enemy. The very first song in the Bible that's labeled as such is sung by the Israelites right after God rescues them through the Red Sea. They get on the other side of the bank and they just have a big party to God and praising God that he is powerful and he threw the most powerful of king and his most powerful weapons into the sea to save them. And they don't use the word Ezer there, but two chapters later, when Moses is recounting the story to his father-in-law, guess what he calls God? His Ezer. So right from the very get-go, and then if we jump, so the very first song is about a woman and a man coming together. And the very last song, I'm sorry, that's really tiny. Um, the very last song in the Bible is in Revelation 19, and it's an alleluia for the wedding of the Lamb. So the very last song is about a wedding. The very first song precedes a wedding. The very last song is about a wedding. And then in the middle, singing is so important to God that right in the middle of his Bible, he's got a whole book full of songs and he's got another book called Lamentations. But the song of songs, the song that is self-proclaimed to be the best song of them all, what's that about? It's about marriage. Interesting. And then in Luke, Mary sings a song in response to finding out that she is going to deliver the savior of the world. And what is Mary? So Mary 
is finding out she's going to be a part of a family, and she responds by singing about God saving us from empire, saving us from the powerful, and turning the world upside down. And in his letters, Paul, at least two times, commands people to sing, or or tells the the churches that he's writing to that they should sing, both times. And, And you know what he talks about immediately after he tells them they should sing? In both instances, husbands and wives and households, singing and then husbands and wives and households. So we get this through line through all of Scripture, right? This through line through all of Scripture, that consistently people respond with singing praises at salvation from God coming through the formation of families. Let's say that again. Consistently people respond with singing praises at salvation from God through the formation of families. And this is, when you think about it, this is when we think about what we've talked about with the Trinity when we started this series, we're invited into a family as part of our salvation, right? This perfect family. And so from the very beginning to the very end, this is God's heart. And and this is why we respond with singing. But why? Like, what does singing have to do with all that? We've got salvation through the formation of families. This is... um, Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. I'm reading the Christian Standard Bible, so it's going to be a little bit different than what's on in your pews, but if you've got a Bible app, if you want to pull it up. But this is Paul talking to the Colossians about singing, and he, he precedes it with this. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, that is, you've been adopted into this family, so here's what the family is like. Here's what you should, how you should act in this family. Put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule in your hearts and be thankful. What a high calling. Anybody feel like you do that really great all the time? Or even some of the, yeah, yeah, me neither. Um, And so this is a high calling for us. So then Paul says, this is how you're going to do it. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Singing to God with gratitude is your heart. I want to focus on this one. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. That among you means that's not just about holding it here in your heart. It's about it dwelling amongst all of us. That we're constantly reminding each other of what God has done. That we're constantly reminding each other of our identity in Christ. To remind us that we belong to that family that began with the Trinity. And this isn't really a new idea for Paul. Paul's not just going off on the cuff and saying, this is how you do it. You got to repeat these messages. Paul was a Pharisee. And so he knew his word. And he knew that Moses told the Israelites something very similar as they were getting ready to go into the promised land. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 18 and 20, he says, imprint these words of mine on your hearts and minds, bind them as a sign on your hands and let them be symbols on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up, write them on your doorposts, on your house and on your city gates, so that as long as the heavens are above the earth, your days and those of your children may be many in the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors. 
Moses and Paul are essentially saying the same thing here. Moses got the, or Paul got the idea from Moses that worship through these constant repetitions and patterns and reminders, kind of like that potter's wheel we talked about before communion a few weeks ago, that it allows the spirit to form and shape us into who we already are by the grace of God, his chosen ones, his special possession, and his bride. That that repetition creates a family, that creates an identity, that forms us into who we are already are. In our tradition at Broadway, we make this repetition palatable by singing a lot, right? I'm always interested in how sometimes we say we're uncomfortable with the idea of, of a, of a pre-written prayer or a call and response kind of thing that's pre-written and we read it off to each other. It doesn't feel right to us. But then we'll turn around and we will sing the same lines over and over and over again in a song. And we love that. Music makes those repetitions more palatable, first of all, for us. And I think that's part of why Paul is telling them, hey, let it dwell richly in you. Let's sing these things. Because music does all kinds of wonderful things in that part. It does all kinds of wonderful things in, in creating that identity and, and connecting those ideas to our hearts and minds. I, in preparation, I, I looked up an article in Psychology Today that talked about all the ways that music affects our minds and our bodies. And, and some of the real important ones, I think, for what we are talking about today is for 95% of people, Experiencing music releases dopamine in the brain. Dopamine is this hormone that gives us pleasure. It's actually the hormone that can drive addiction for some people. So that whatever we connect to music for 95% of us, I, I don't know what's going on with the other 5%, but um, for 95% of it, us, music creates a connection similar to addiction. In fact, as part of that article, they were talking about a study where people were on uh, anti-addiction medication who also reported enjoying music, and they actually reported less enjoyment of music while they were on that medication. It's that powerful of a, of a connection for us. And when we connect ideas to that music, those ideas are connected in just as powerful of a way to what we're doing. So when we're trying to remind ourselves and remind one another of who we are in Christ, attaching it to music attaches that to our hearts and our ex experiences and our emotions in a way that few other things can't. It also allows us to refine and regulate our emotions. Because we can experience, music can create emotions in us, we can then know what this means, what this truth means in this emotion, even if we haven't experienced it in our day-to-day -day lives. Like if music makes us feel a longing that we haven't felt before, well, if we apply truth to that with that music, now we understand how that truth works in a sense of longing without having to necessarily go through a time of longing. It also attaches favorable feelings to whatever we're listening to. There was another study in this article about how they played music in the wine section of a grocery store, and they played when they played French music, most of the people bought the French wine. And when they played German music, most of the people bought the German wine. It connects these good feelings to our hearts. And then the other thing that they talked about that's really important, and kind of what we're talking about with Moses and Paul here, is that it creates identities that music creates identities. If you think about a fight song for your high school or your college, like you and everybody who went to that school knows that fight song and you're part of that group. That's the same thing music can do in the church. It creates an identity. It helps form that identity in us. The other thing I want to point out here is this word admonishing. It kind of has a, 
a negative connotation in the English, right? Like, oh, no, 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 shouldn't do that. But Paul purposefully, I think, uses this word, admonish. This word in, in the Greek is, I'm going to destroy the pronunciation, but nuthateo. Um, and it's a compound word that comes from the word mind and to place. Literally, to place the mind. And we know music can do this, right? If you hear a jingle, if I go, ba-da-ba-ba-ba, um, yeah, yeah, now everybody's thinking about, you placed your mind in the golden arches, right? <laughs> You're right there, oh man, we want a Big Mac, it's getting close to lunch. Um, <laughs> so, um, music does that, it immediately places our mind where it ought to be. You can also think about if uh, you start hearing pomp and circumstance, right? Ba da 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 da. Where are you? Da 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 da. Yeah, you're at a graduation, right? Just the presence of music can place your mind at a particular place, and the purpose of that in the church is to place our minds on things above, where Christ is King, right? Where we can do that. My, my, don't tell my son I'm going to talk about a Christmas movie in October. He'll accuse me of rank hypocrisy. But um, one of our favorite Christmas movies and that's not religious at all um, in, our, in our household is the movie Elf. Is anybody familiar with that movie? And yeah, if you don't know the movie, the basic plot is it's a human who's raised by elves at the North Pole. And then one day he discovers, oh, he actually is human because being twice as tall as everybody wasn't enough of a of a clue and and he also finds out his real dad is on the naughty list so he goes on an adventure to go get his dad off the naughty list but one of the lines that comes up over and over in this movie is the best way to spread christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear and it's one of those times where i look at a hollywood movie and i go so close <laughs> because that's the point of this music but the best way to spread christian cheer or message or belief or truth is singing loud for those around you to hear and reinforces their faith and i know paul knew this and he probably didn't know it because he read it in psychology today i'm just just the hunch on that one but because he experienced it himself in acts chapter 16 paul and his companion silas are beaten and arrested basically for healing a possessed girl um, because others were using her for profit. And so they arrested and beat him and threw him in jail. And what do they do in jail? Everybody know? What? They sing. They pray and sing hymns as they're in the jail. And the story is quite dramatic. The, the, there's an earthquake and the gate opens. And if, you know, if this were an American action movie, they would have run out and judo chopped the guard and walked out and off, off they go and get to their freedom. But what do they do instead? They stay and wait. And the, and the, <laughs> and the jailer comes in and he is ready to kill himself because that was going to be the punishment for losing prisoners anyway. Um, and better to do it yourself than the way, imaginative ways the Romans had for killing people. And they stop him. So I, I think sometimes we hear that story and we're tempted to think that the singing and the hymns brought the earthquake on and opened the door so they could escape. And the singing wasn't for that. The singing placed their minds on things above where they could see that they, even though they were in prison, they were the ones who were free in Christ Jesus and that the jailer was the person that needed to be free. And the result of that, of that focusing the mind, placing the mind where it belongs, resulted in the jailer and his entire household becoming to faith. When we sing, we are formed. When we worship through that singing, we, 
we are formed into people who have our minds in the right place so that when we enter a crisis, we act the right way. We act according to heaven, not according to earth, right? And the singing, and we can do that through repetition. That's how, that's how we can do it. But singing is like a supercharger, this turbo for that experience. It, it energizes it to another degree because of all those reasons we talked about from the psychology today. So we do want to sing. We want to respond in worship through singing because it does all those things. But that should raise one more question in our minds, right? <laughs> is, is are we worshiping or just singing? Lots of, lots of people sing and, and they're not worshiping. And we need to know because we want to be formed by this worship, by this singing is into little Christs. So to know if it's singing or to know if it's worship, to be worship, it must be truthful. It must be truthful. It's correct. Poor theology in our repeated patterns of worship will lead to malformation in our identity and deeds. Um, Ryan has said it it's, um, in previous weeks that you become like what you worship. And if we are worshiping something that's untrue, we are not going to bring life to people like Paul and Silas did. We're going to bring harm and hurt. And if we are engaging with messages and repeated patterns of something else in this world, it could be political or national or cultural, economical, all of these things have a pattern of their own. But if we are more engaged in those things than we are in the patterns of Christ, we are likely to become like them and less like Christ. Not saying don't engage. It's important that we're part of this where Paul and Silas engage the world. Just that we should be mindful of how those things might be shaping us. Because these powers and principalities want to shape us too. So first, in order to be worship, it must be truthful. Secondly, in order to be worship, it must be authentic. It must be authentic. In my life, I have gone to, I was raised in a church that sang hymns every Sunday. We even had a handbell choir. Have you ever heard that? Okay, good. So people, it's not used a whole lot anymore. Um, and then when I went to college, I was part of leading worship for our campus ministry um, that was part of crew. And then, but at the same time, my last year of college, I was hired as a choir director at a church where we wore long green robes and, and the pastor would read the, the, the lectionary scripture, the planned scripture for the day, and we would stand up and sing a few quick amens and sit back down. And then at the same time, I would stay after that service for the contemporary service and help with that service. And then I went on, my first job out of college was leading worship at a church that was intentionally blending those two things together or trying to. Um, and a big part of why that church struggled and ultimately failed was because they couldn't stop arguing about how much of the traditional and how much of the contemporary should we put together? How many of these things should we put together? And then I, went worship, I helped lead worship at a church that had dark ceilings and very charismatic people speaking in tongues at different times in the service. And then from there went to a church that looked very much like this without the balcony and, um, and where we used contemporary worship and there was not a whole lot, of, it was all planned though. It was all planned and we knew how many times we were gonna repeat that and then, then I came here. And I say all that not to say, well, look at all the things I've done, but just so you know that I have had a front row seat for most of my adult life to what's often called the worship wars. These, these arguments we have about this should be included or that should be included or this should be excluded and that should be excluded. And I can tell you from that experience 
that almost everybody in those arguments, almost everybody is coming from the same godly desire to be authentic in worship. Every last, almost every last one of them. In our contemporary churches, we strive for this authenticity often by using the emotive power of music, right? To avoid these pandemic readings and prayers. And for sure, engaging our emotions and senses in worship is an aid in formation. I hope from what all we've talked about already, that's very clear, that when we engage our emotions and senses in worship, that we are more likely to be formed. It, gives, it makes us softer clay for the potter. But if our only metric for authenticity is how it feels, if our only metric for authenticity is how it feels, we will struggle to know for sure if we are worshiping God or simply making an idol out of a dopamine hit. So, so the question for authenticity, regardless of our emotional or dopamine status, if there's music or just recitations, if there's a pipe organ or an electric guitar, or if we're in a small intimate group with no instruments or a huge anonymous mass at a live concert, is it allowing the spirit to shape us? That's the question. Authentic worship is worship in which the spirit forms us. It's when we get back up on that potter's wheel and allow the rotations and the movement of that potter's wheel and the touch of the potter to form us. There's this interesting part of, of John chapter four where Jesus meets the woman at the well. And, you know, it, it, it's the salvation story for that woman. But one of the things she asks is, hey, how come I'm a Samaritan and I think we should worship here and you're a Jew and you think we should worship in the temple? What, which one's true? Which one's right? And, and Jesus doesn't really tell her which one's right. His response to her is in John 4, 23, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the fathers seek in spirit and in truth. How do we measure our, the authenticity of our singing? It's not our, our emotions or lack thereof is not the measure of it. The use of this location or that location is not the measure of it. The use of this new technology or that ancient practice is not the measure of it. The use of spontaneous exhortations or planned readings is not the measure of it. Is the Spirit guiding us? What's, is the Spirit guiding us? Is the Spirit using this to form us into people like Paul described in Colossians 3, 12 through 15? That's the measure of it. Is, he, is the Spirit using it to form us into a Romans 12 people like Ryan talked about a few weeks ago, let who let love be without hypocrisy, detest evil, cling to what is good, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters, take the lead in honoring one another. Is the Spirit forming us into a Galatians 5 people who bear love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Or a Sermon on the Mount people who love their enemies, turn the other cheek, and seek first the kingdom of God? Or a Philippians 2 people who do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than ourselves, looking not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others? Is it forming us into little Christs? That's the measure of the authenticity of our worship. No matter how we do it, if we sing and sing, but are never formed, we are probably singing to someone else. Probably ourselves. Jesus, in response to the Pharisees wondering why his disciples didn't use the same worship practices that they did, responded with this 
He said, these, he said of the Pharisees, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain for nothing. Their teachings are merely human rules. If we are only willing to sing or use what feels right to our human minds, we are in danger of putting human rules ahead of worship. We might be missing out on some way that the Spirit wants to form us. And when Jesus said these words, he was actually quoting Isaiah. And Isaiah went on a little further. And he said, you turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, you did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? Can we dare say to the spirit, that's not worship and I won't participate in it if he is using it to form people into Christ-likeness? Maybe, maybe a song or a style isn't just, just isn't your cup of tea. Maybe it's not. Um, <laughs> I looked it up because I wanted to know when it exactly it happened and I wanted to make sure I got the person right. Almost exactly four years ago, Lisa was the worship leader and... Kevin Duvall was coming to preach, and, and sometimes preachers make, make requests of certain songs they want us to do, and, and he said, I want you to sing Shine, Jesus, Shine. And Lisa and I looked at each other and went, ugh, ugh, that song, really? Uh, it's because something from our past tells us that that song is for happy-go-lucky, wax Christians who don't really deal with society and just put on a big smile and shine, Jesus, shine. It's... I, I'm sorry if you love it, but it's, it's, it's a terrible song. <laughs> and, and we looked for every excuse not to do it. Like, oh, maybe it's not actually in the Broadway category, and it would be a new song, and we don't want to, like, throw too many new songs. No, it was there. Um, just looking for any excuse not to do this song, because it's so bad. <laughs> just can't stand it. <laughs> yeah, we, we, ha we run into those problems with worship sometimes, right? Right? Like, like it happens. And the other place where Paul tells a church to sing is to the church in Ephesus. And he says, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing, it sounds very familiar, singing and making music in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. So we did the song. Because um, <laughs> we couldn't come up with a good reason not to do the song other than, ugh, this shine Jesus shine, really? Um, <laughs> and God used that that Sunday to form people. God used it when we submitted to the song, and when we submitted to something we didn't want, God used it to form. And you know what? It, it even formed me a little bit. I mean, it formed me into somebody who despised that song slightly less. Like I said, this is, this is a potter's wheel, and it was one touch for the potter, and maybe I need to sing it a few more times. But when I put... When I put earnest effort into it, when I put myself into it through singing, and I was playing bass that Sunday, actually, when I, when I really wrestled with the lyrics, even though it's an awful song, um, <laughs> like I was formed as well. Even something that I didn't like could form me. And part of the way that happens is that when we submit one to another, aside from presence, submission is the most prevalent act of love within the Trinity. Aside from presence, submission is the most prevalent act of love. And when we submit one to another, maybe this song isn't for me, but it's going to form my neighbor, my brother, my sister. Maybe this worship style isn't me, for me personally. But even through that submission to that, I am being formed into Christ, who submits to the Father in all things. So why singing? Why do we respond with singing? Because it strengthens our identity as children saved by our Father. 
because it aids and catalyzes our formation into his bride by connecting his truth to our thoughts and emotions so we are ready to act like him in all circumstances, good and bad. Because it strengthens the bonds of peace and unity we have as brothers and sisters in Christ by teaching us to simultaneously admonish and submit one to another so we look more like him. With all of this good, we should probably stop listening to me blabber on about it and get back to singing. Amen? Amen. <laughs> Let's pray. God, thank you for your gift of music and singing. Thank you for the way it connects our hearts and our minds to you. Thank you for that gift. God, we want to be like you. God, may we seek your face in all the things we do. It's in your name I pray. Amen.